0: The following episode was recorded initially for the one-on-one podcast, but as the theme of our conversation follows very well the topics covered in Food Broken Promises, I decided to publish the episode again so that you don't miss out on this great conversation. So enjoy.
1: From day one, it was Make Sustainability Sexy. Nature never planned to have a bin. Everything in nature is zero waste.
0: This is One on One, a Tibia for Two production. I am Antoine Busamra.
1: The world continues to separate itself from nature, and the more we do, the more the planet suffers, the more nature dies. We are part of nature, we are not above nature. It is law, and it is religion, it is capitalism, it is industrialism, it is materialism and consumerism. These things don't exist in nature.
0: In every episode, I invite you to discover the stories of people in the world of food who are on a mission to protect the environment, defend their cultures, or fight for more social and economic justice. One-on-one will help you redefine your relationship food
1: bin is the end of a material life it is the grave where materials go to die and when you take that away what the system needs to become to find equilibrium or equanimity it needs to become circular
0: good afternoon. It's a wonderful pleasure to be back for a new episode of the one-on-one podcast. And today I have the pleasure, privilege and honor to welcome Chef Douglas McMaster of Silo London. Good afternoon, Douglas.
1: It's a pleasure to be, uh, to be speaking with you today. Thank you for having me.
0: Your bio will be in the, in, in, in the notes of the podcast, but very briefly, I'm just a very, very, very quick way. Um, you didn't fit in at school and then you found a home in a kitchen restaurant, kitchen. And then you decided to go on a tour of the world to discover all these mighty chefs and stars and everything. And then you landed down under uh, and there you saw a kind of epiphany with a uh, a person that is very important in your life, Jost Becker. Uh, and you call him the uh, zero waste uh, guru or uh, visionary. And he he's the one who told you about... What if you didn't have a bin to discard things in a in a restaurant? And then you went back to the UK after staying in Melbourne for a few years. You went back in the UK and you started Silo. Uh, first location was in Brighton, if I'm not mistaken. And there people were telling you this is not going to work. It's just like, why, why do you bother? Et cetera, et cetera. And actually it did work. (laughs) You won a few awards in the meantime. And then you open silo in London. And as I was going to say, the rest is history. Now you're known as the zero waste guy, uh, with a book called the zero waste blueprint and to try to explain what the philosophy is about and what you're trying to achieve. So that's in a few words. Uh, Mm. did I miss anything?
1: That's a really good uh, a synopsis of, of, of the journey. Yes, that's great.
0: To start with, I wanted to go back to, to Melbourne. When when he told you, what about no bins? What was your first reaction, your first impression?
1: Um, I thought this, this guy was um, from the future. I didn't think that he was from our reality. I thought um, he's on a different wave length, a different frequency of consciousness. Um, I was quite young at the time, 23, and I was very tired of the industry of, of, of gastronomy, of hospitality. I was very tired of the way that the culture within kitchens would think about food and think about life, and I didn't know it. It was sort of unconscious things that were, 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 were bothering me, but I couldn't quite articulate what was wrong or what what could be right. And then I met Joost and he's a seven foot tall, beautiful Dutch man with piercing blue eyes. And he has this aura around him that is just quite special. And I was just in awe of him and his work. And um, he then said to me, he said a few things, um, but then he said, could you not have a bin? And um, I just thought that was such a fascinating, abstract provocation. And um, I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what the word sustainability mm-hmm. meant, but um, I just sort of said, yes, I could do that. I will do that. Um, and I kind of have committed my life to, to not having a bin ever since.
0: So today, if you look back at that period, at that moment when he was telling you about this and the feeling that you had basically that, you know, that there was something wrong with the industry, you didn't really you know, knew how to articulate it. Would you be able to articulate now, why you felt like that at the time?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Um, no, it'd be a pleasure to talk about that. So I believe I've, I've, I've started to see the world differently um, through that question, uh, leading on to many different um, uh, pathways of, th- of thinking. Mm-hmm. And one of the things to, to talk to, to highlight here is, um, I guess, kind of, Uh, two types of reality there is an objective reality and there is an imagined reality Mm -hmm. the objective reality is trees and uh, a mountain and a a table made from a tree and you know things that are objectively real Um, Mm -hmm. and then there is an imagined reality now the imagined reality is of the modern world it's of human nature not nature It is law and it is religion. It is capitalism, it is industrialism, it is materialism and consumerism. These things don't exist in nature. If you said to a monkey, I will pay you five pounds for your banana, the monkey would just not take you seriously because that is an imagined reality. That is not an objective reality. That has no value unless it was wiping its bottom or blowing its nose, which I don't think monkeys do would mean nothing to that monkey and so that's just an example of this kind of um division of what is real and what is not now through these abstractions that humans uniquely um, identify with and no other species identifies with these abstract thoughts the ones that are just Mm -hmm. uh, listed we've created some amazing things we've Mm -hmm. we've created beautiful artworks we've you know flown to the moon we've created um modern healthcare that has saved millions of lives um some seriously you know some seriously incredible um creations art galleries these things are amazing films media you know really good art now that's the good side of the imagined reality mm-hmm. but there is a bad side I won't list too many, but um, waste predominantly in this story is a significant thing that has been created that was never part of an objective reality. Nature never planned to have a bin. Everything in nature is zero waste. Um, mm-hmm. I've kind of cut to, the, cut to the end there a little bit, but um, there is no bin in a jungle. There is no bin in a desert. The bin is an abstraction that was never part of nature. And so that insight, that perspective is what I've started seeing um, as a, as an individual many years later after that question. And so it's taken a long time to develop that worldview and that worldview is inevitably going to to unravel and uh, evolve but um, it just becomes the kind of center of motivation. It was the center of my motivation 11 years ago when I met Yost. but it just remains fixed in the center of Silo's kind of motivation. It's how, just because the world continues to separate itself from nature, and the more we do, the more the planet suffers, the more nature dies. The more we separate from nature and that is true with industrial agriculture that is true with the the nutrients of soil disappearing or being destroyed that is true with the uh, ozone layer being damaged and the rising temperatures of the ocean and the melting ice caps and the rate of cancer going from one in 80 mm-hmm. to one in two um these are all things that are occurring because we have separated from nature now, I believe wholeheartedly, and it's not even a belief, it is absolutely the truth, um, that the solution to not destroying the planet, the solution to not having the sixth extinction of, of the planet, um, would be to uh, awaken to the truth that we are part of nature, we are not above nature. The word anthropocentric is a word that it says that we think ourselves separate and above nature and this is the greatest uh, failure of human civilization is to think that we're above nature and what i believe in and uh, many many others are uh, awakening to the truth the reality is that we need to consider nature not even our ally we are nature and we need to integrate and connect back to nature
0: yeah so this is basically in a nutshell the philosophy Behind everything that you do, beautifully said. What I was, what I was wondering is, in, in your book, you're you're mentioning at the in the conclusion, change is hard, um, on an individual level and on a, on a society level. When you were starting to formulate those ideas, you were convinced because you saw it and you felt about it and you had that special relation to it and you kind of understood it because there was something that you know that was talking to you. Now between you going on that path and deciding to make that change in the way probably you lived and you live, in the way you work, um, in the expression of silo and everything that you do. What about the others? Because change at the personal level is, is very nice, but here you're trying to do something that is bigger than that. What was the response of the people at the beginning when you started to elaborate, when you started to articulate the ideas and, and your plan?
1: Um, well, there's been a lot of resistance to, to silo, uh, to 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 this innovation, and I know I've already touched on a very philosophical worldview. You know, the imagined and the mm-hmm. um, objective reality. That's a very philosophical view mm-hmm. of uh, human nature. And I've got another one. Um, I guess it's the way my mind is wired. Please do. I,
0: see... <laughs> I love these things I... because ideas change the world
1: yeah yeah people don't change the world ideas do exactly but um there is a there is an allegory that perfectly describes the resistance to innovation now before i mention that it's i will say the greater the innovation the greater the isolation so the greater uh, the innovation And I would include Silo in that. You know, we within the world of cooking and hospitality are so different to everything else that exists. Mm -hmm. It's so far away, not in like being good or bad, just different. Now, that is sometimes really good. You know, it's easy to, you know, get Uh, the media excited about what we do because it's different you know and people want to know about different things in the media now it's more so difficult in uh i guess commercially alienating ourselves from the market Mm -hmm. if you imagine the, the the mass the majority of people understanding what is existing in that commercial space we are doing something that's very far away from that commercial space and so you alienate yourself from your own audience. You know We need customers to come mm-hmm. in to fill our restaurant to, to, to be sustainable as a sustainable business. Yes. Um, so there's a huge challenge with that kind of innovation. And they say within innovation circles that you want to innovate just on the edge of um, that commercial understanding mm-hmm. because then you're considered avant-garde but people generally understand what you're doing, you know. You can just kind of change and alter yeah. what already exists yeah. to be sort of pushing the boundaries. Whereas Silo um, goes really far away from that commercial circle. And so that is very challenging. But would I, if I was more commercially minded, I might have been less radical, but I'm not commercially minded. I see something in nature, in, re- in the reality of human existence, which is that, you know, waste is a symptom of an unsustainable system. So I can't change a little bit when I know I should be changing a lot. You know, the change that needs to happen is sig- significant. You know, we do not have a thousand years to change our behaviors. We have decades to change our behaviors. And so that radical innovation is just the only way I can consciously uh, engage with Silo. I I just can't. Yeah. I I appreciate that it is very different and sometimes for some people a bit too different, a bit too extreme, a bit too radical, but it's just the way I have to do Silo. And in that process in the last decade, which is what it's been, a decade, there has been a lot of resistance to what we do. There's been a lot of uh, people saying that, you know, it's it's bullshit. People saying Doug's just a hipster wanker, you know, just trying to get attention. There's a lot of... There's been a, mm-hmm. genuinely a lot of hate for what we do. Before we opened, there was an article that read, Silo will fail. We'd not even opened, and there was an article saying, Silo will fail. So... <laughs> That's hard to deal with, especially when you're a young, passionate um, individual that uh, has suffered a lot in childhood with feeling like a failure, feeling unworthy, and hearing these things and being bullied like I was in in school, that's quite hard to to, to manage, you know? And so there was an allegory that has been my um, salvation, my cognitive catharsis in this process. of of alienation and that is um, Plato's allegory of the cave. Mm -hmm. And the allegory of the cave is a a story about somebody that lives in a society in a cave and finds his or her way out of the cave and sees this other world and is enlightened to this kind of future vision of the world and returns to the cave and tells the, the cave dwellers that there is this bigger, brighter future ahead. You know, as soon as we can get out of the cave, and expecting everybody to rejoice in this kind of bright future that they can all find. And everyone in the cave kills the cave dweller, the person that has gone out and back down to the cave with the news of this radical future. They they kill that cave mm-hmm. uh, dweller, that, that person that saw a potential future. And what it speaks to is that the amount when you're talking to an enormous amount of people and saying something that is so overwhelming, you've got to be very sensitive to how that uh, community responds to your vision because it's overwhelming. Humans can only take so much reality, and the world right now is so overwhelming, and there's so much information that just quashes us into a, a mindset that is. Um, that's the that's the struggle. That's yeah. been the struggle, and there's been a lot of resistance.
0: There was something I was wondering: is that when you when you get the pushbacks, uh, the allegory of of Plato uh, of of the cavern and the cave, it's v- very uh, pictureful. Did you understand why they were pushing back? So that's my first question. And then I have they have another one: is that that in answer to those to those negative comments and to those pushbacks how did you besides the allegory how did you manage to keep on because it's 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 not easy it's not easy every single day to wake up and to have those doubts to have that you know inner there's not only the external resistance but there's an inner resistance that tells you you know why bother you know why why you want to do this you're not worthy of it and that little voice always exist. Sometimes it's further away, sometimes it's closer. So how do you manage to be able to do that? So first of all, do you understand why they were pushing back? And the second of all, how did you get through those times?
1: To answer the first question, there was no... What What I found so confounding is that I knew that what I was trying to do was genuinely a solution, a genuine innovation that could be applied in every food system and everywhere in the world and everywhere could not have been um this was a genuine living breathing holistic design for a sustainable food system and i was bringing it, it to the world and i thought yes um i'm so i found so much fulfillment and joy in this uh this idea and i can't wait to bring it to the world and then the the response to, uh, to this mm-hmm. project, you know, don't get me wrong. There was people that were like, yeah, this is brilliant. Mm-hmm. But then the greater majority of people seemed incredibly frosty and quite negative and um, uh, quite cynical about the project. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm fine with um, somebody playing devil's advocate. I'm I'm fine with being challenged. In fact, I welcome it. I I, I want to be challenged. I, I want to be made to grow in the way I think about, you know, a project or an idea. But what I learned was is that there was no, there was no, there was no actual objection to what I was doing. There was just a feeling of being overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, if there was anything uh, in the feedback, the critical feedback that was was a it was plausible. And I would have taken it very seriously, and yes. sometimes there was, sometimes there was, but it was just this, and I'm going to use the word irrational. Mm-hmm. There was an irrational resistance to this thing, and that's where, for so many months and years, I was dumbfounded. I was just like, "What is what is occurring here?" Uh, like on a on a level, and
0: were they scared? Yeah,
1: I, 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 I think I, I'll say intimidated. I'll say overwhelmed, challenged um, by what this was, you mm-hmm. know, the way it's it is an abstraction. It is something that it's like a whole worldview that is very complex. You know what i've what we've talked about thus far, it's a complex, simple, but when that's not the way you think, that's a really overwhelming worldview to to wrestle with, to kind of like to even to contemplate. And when people's minds are already full of information and full their bandwidth, cognitive bandwidth anxiety, um, you know, their minds are full. It's just uh, the natural response is this isn't benefiting me right now in my life. I've got, you know, bills to pay and I've got stresses here, and I've got family problems, and I've got da-da-da-da-da. And this, you know, young uh, individuals talking about pre-industrial food systems and it's just too much, you know, pushback. So it's kind of an unconscious subliminal resistance to mm. this, you know, hugely complex future vision. And so the negative response that I think that I was um, very regularly battered around the head with, very regularly, Um, figuratively battered around the head. I wasn't actually battered around the head, but it was very regular. It was every day, like online, uh, in the restaurant, uh, people walking past the restaurant. There was just a beration of what we were doing as a negative. And I was just dumbfounded. I couldn't believe it. So the word irrational is the answer to your first question. It wasn't a rational distaste of Silo. It was a irrational... Uh, they were confounded with it and just was negative because it just didn't fit their emotional template or their Mm -hmm. cognitive template. And so that's where that resistance came from, I believe. Um, And the second one, how did I deal with that? You know, uh, I've I've had a really good therapist for many years. So uh, I've had a really good uh, mind coach to grapple with those hardships and they were hard. You know, uh, I, when I was young and at school, I, um, I'm a neurodivergent. I have dyslexia, dyscalculia, dyspraxia. I'm definitely on the spectrum. Um, and at school that was never recognized. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was afraid. I mean, in fact, I was terrified. Um, I was very shy. I was so shy that I would always dress in the most plain clothes and the plainest haircut i would hide away from being seen i was a as a as a very small child just didn't mm. speak and i was kind of terrified by the world and and then when i was in school academia made me feel very very small because i couldn't do it mm. and suffered in school and my uh, self esteem the the way i value myself is very very small in my unconscious mind Mm -hmm. and so it's natural for somebody like me and i'm sure there's a lot of people that have had similar childhoods um in which that unconscious inner child can come out and receive that information that negative information quite destructively and so it's really um i think um it's really powerful for everybody to Get in touch with that inner child to understand what's in their shadow in their unconscious mind, because it can be quite destructive to live in this world with that part of their self that is unrecognized. It can be very destructive, and and that has been a process for me of learning and unlearning uh, what I think I know. So that's sort of how I've managed it. And 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 I, uh, my mum is responsible for this, but my mum would never quit at anything and my mum would just never quit and I've picked up that whether that's genetic or just uh nurtured into me I just will not quit because I'm terrified of that failure what that would symbolize in my life five years ago was just unacceptable um I could probably cope with it now if we failed in a few years I could probably cope with that but at that time, I was like, I cannot fail. I cannot let this thing go. So, no matter how difficult it got, how many years, I did not pay myself, and I slept in the restaurant, and you know, so on. I just wouldn't quit. So that was the other way I survived.
0: Thankfully, it did not fail. And because it's it's a very it's a very very complex uh, operation. So we 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 talked about you know the, the philosophy, the worldview, why it came about, the reasons, etc now in terms of the operation itself and and the way you have because you know you 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 talk the walk and you walk the talk completely from from a to z um there's there's no uh, maybe the light bulbs <laughs> that's another, that's one thing maybe that <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but for yeah. the rest but for the for the rest everything everything in the restaurant from the the furniture to where you get the food, how you process, it, how you, you cook the food, how you prepare it, do, how to use the waste, etc. Everything from the upcycling part of the glasses that that, that you're using for, you know, to do plates and things like that. Everything is thought about. It is so complex. I, I know that the restaurant is a very complex operation, but this one <laughs> must have been a lot of trials and errors in that.
1: We're, we're mimicking nature, and nature is complex. Mm-hmm. Nature is whole there is not necessarily a specialization. Um, It is the specialization is of the whole system. And so when you live that mindset, Mm -hmm. you can't just buy a bottle of wine or everything is as important as another thing. You know, it's not like the dishes are the most important thing because it's like saying the leaves are the most important part of the tree you know that doesn't make any sense the the roots the soil the the ecosystem the bark the branches everything is a balance and and so with this restaurant everything is in balance everything is important everything is designed to work together um and that includes on a macro level it's like what we represent as a an ideology in literal terms how we behave as a restaurant is the same mentality as the farmers that we work with. The farmers are thinking, they're not thinking that it's all about the carrot. They're thinking it's all about the soil and how that responds to the carrot and how, you know, we don't wrap things in plastic because that's not what nature does. And um, they're thinking about um, acidity, they're thinking about alk- alkali- uh, alkalization, they're thinking about rainwater. It's like a very holistic view um, that we are approaching and it makes obvious sense for a, a farm to consider nature in those terms yes. because it is on the very nose of nature whereas I see all human life needs to adapt to that same consideration of ho- holism and so yeah it's it sounds very lofty but it is very real it is very very real and if you come to silo you, you'll see, that sophistication in, in every detail. It is not like, oh, we'll just focus on good cooking or we'll just focus on not having a bin. You know, the, the not having a bin is this kind of, the the end of a material's life. It is the grave. Uh, it's where, where materials go to die. And when you take that away, what the system needs to become to find mm. equilibrium or equanimity it needs to become circular because there's no grave for a linear material to die in. There's no there's no grave for any material to die in. So we still have, well, of course we have a compost bin, which is a bin, but it's a good bin. It's not considered a grave. The Bertha, that's bin her name? Bin.
0: Um, Bertha, that's her name? Bertha,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> we used to have a compost machine called Bertha Oh, yeah. um, which used quite a lot of energy. So we've given that to a, a brewery that can make better use of Bertha. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, now we have so little waste that we just follow a very traditional non-electrical um, composting solution. Okay. But um, but yeah, so we just basically considered this system of, of, of things happening, of feeding people, of, of consumption as a design that is mimicking you know an, an ecosystem. and again it might sound so radical to some people but it is very real and i welcome anyone that challenges that to come and see it because seeing is believing and it is very real and we've done it for 10 years now and it only grows more sophisticated and it is the future it has to be the future this is the only way and i don't mean silo but this way of thinking this appreciation of nature is our salvation, uh, and I mean that on every level. Every level, it is the future, and it has to be.
0: Yeah, there's a, We'll talk about the future in a second. We're, we're getting close to the end of the, the conversation, but there's one question before talking about the future. There's one question re- regarding the flavors, the taste, the the experimentation that you do, and how strong and and sometimes. Okay, I'm, I'm not taking this out of context. When you discover that you can cook your carrots in compost made of lemons, okay, you 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 get flavors that are so out of this world. now, how do you how do you get to that process briefly and and what is the response of the of the diners, of the patrons coming in and 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 trying those those dishes? Because at the end of the day, it's a restaurant. People yeah. come for enjoyment as well as, you know, the, the philosophical aspect yep. and everything around it. But there's the food and it's center stage.
1: Yeah. So in a nutshell, if I was to, to tell you our business plan, you know, I'm talking very real business mm-hmm. plan terms now. From day one, it was make sustainability sexy. Okay. So what I mean by sexy is make it delicious. The food needs to be delicious. Mm. The the design, it's all designed out of waste material. This table that I'm sat on is made out of waste plastic, but it is beautiful. It is sexy. The service is graceful. The service is um, sophisticated. The the wines are excellent. So make sustainability sexy. Um, You could say make sustainability beautiful, but the idea there is that no one's going to listen if it's not, mm-hmm. no one's going to sure. listen. If it's ugly, no one's going to yeah. listen if it doesn't taste very good. Yes, yes. And so from day one, day one, it's like, well, my pedigree, I was, um, I was working in the world's best restaurants. Mm-hmm. So the way I've been trained is to a level where my standards are very, very high. And so that is inherently, uh, the sort of standard within the system. Now, I believe that's why we're still in business, because we make it sexy. And in terms of flavor specifically, when you don't have a bin, a lot of things happen. Uh, you go on a pathway that no one's ever walked. You, 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 you go down a pathway and you realize, oh, we're working only with farmers, so we need to, we need to churn our own butter. Mm -hmm. We need to make our own yogurt. We need to mill our own flour. We need to, you know, that path leads you um, down another path and then another path and then another path. And you're so far away from, you know, the way people move and walk in restaurants. You're just constantly innovating things that would have never happened. Now, one of the big discoveries on that pathway and that journey was this big clearing where we discovered fermentation. Mm-hmm. And it was this huge moment to stop and be like, wow, this is, this is the biggest game changer to zero waste since, since ever. This is so significant because what fermentation offers silo is a highly efficient way to process surplus ingredients into products that are mind blowing delicious. You've Mm. tasted a miso, you've tasted a fish sauce, Mm. you've tasted soy sauce. No one can deny how incredible those flavors are. They're all advanced fermentation. And when we discovered advanced fermentation and how to do it, it was just like everything changed. And the flavors that we discover through that pathway of fermentation isn't only delicious, but all of our dish design starts with fermentation. And so isn't that ironic and poetic that we are designing flavors from something that would have been wasted. So again, you see this example Mm -hmm. of reverse engineering, you know, we've taken away the bin Mm -hmm. and that's the end of a material's life. And we've designed from that. And now we've discovered fermentation, which is the end of a material's life. And we're designing from that point, which is just kind of fascinating to me. Um, But essentially, We would describe the food at Silo as uh, fire and fermentation. There is a lot of fermentation because it closes the loop on all of our Mm -hmm. surplus, and that is very diverse. It's not like you're eating miso on every course. It is incredibly diverse. And then fire because everything's cooked on fire. We have an open fire in the restaurant. So, yeah, fire and fermentation, and it has to be sexy.
0: Wow. Wow. Before going to the people questionnaire, so, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, it's about change. It's about that worldview where you think that we need to change our relationship to nature and be part of nature again and not on top of it or yeah. thinking that we are controlling it, et cetera, et cetera. What would be the three things you think would need to happen for this worldview for your for your for what you're trying to achieve to grow and and to reach out to a larger and larger and larger audience.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, Awareness. Um, Mm -hmm. We're in our bubbles and there's a term metacognition. Mm -hmm. And the idea of metacognition is that we're in a bubble and imagine, or you could say like a TV screen, you know, the TV screen represents everything going on in your life. If we can step outside of that headspace and witness ourselves on TV objectively and what i mean by objectively in this case is we're not biased to our own behavior and we're we're witnessing ourselves and our behaviors in this world to be aware of ourselves you know um, objectively and um, be rational about how we behave i think just waking up into that mindful state of mind is one of the most powerful things we can do because if we're not aware of you know if you go to the supermarket and you buy a load of food in plastic and then return home, you're not aware Mm -hmm. what that plastic pollution means. Apparently we're eating a credit card of plastic every month, like in micro, in the form of microplastics, there's this new statistic that we're eating a credit card of plastic inside our food system bonkers so if we're not aware of going to the supermarket and how that supermarket is predicated on industrial agriculture and industrial agriculture is destroying the planet yes full stop full stop there's just no two ways about it it's people going to the supermarket don't know that and so being aware is definitely a significant part to play secondly and thirdly openness so to not be dogmatic. You know, we all, we, all have, we all have egos and we all want to be right and we don't want to be wrong. But if we can't accept that we're wrong, we'll never be able to fix the error of our ways. We can't change the world with the same thinking that created the problems in the world. So to be open-minded and to be willing to be wrong, to be fallible and not dogmatic, that's the number two. And number three is, um, I'm just going to go <laughs> for an easy one, just yeah. to be kind and compassionate to you know, people around us.
0: Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, so as I said, we're getting close to the end of the conversation, but before the end, we have the people questionnaire. So it's the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, are you ready?
1: Yep, I'm ready.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: Uh, uh, oh, uh, reverent. Reverence, as in deep respect for something. Reverence just sounds good.
0: What is your least favorite word?
1: So, I like to think about words and I like to design them into my vocabulary a lot. And the word seldom, it just sounds wrong.
0: So Sorry, which one?
1: Being like, oh, it rarely happens. Seldom. Ah, seldom. So like, you could say, um, sel- seldom do I have the opportunity to go swimming. <laughs> Yeah. But the word just sounds wrong every time I say it. So my least favorite word is seldom.
0: Okay, your favorite virtue.
1: I remember when I was young, the the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, this this selfless act of virtue, this selfless selfless act for others. Um, yeah, o- occasionally I I, I see um, uh, like an old lady crossing the road, and the feeling, uh, which very rarely happens. I, I hate to admit. Um, the feeling you get from helping someone is just the most powerful and profound uh, virtue. So, yeah, um, I guess acts of service.
0: Your favorite quality in a woman?
1: Ooh, wisdom.
0: Your favorite quality in a man?
1: Uh, also wisdom.
0: What ingredient and or dish would you use to describe yourself?
1: Ooh, um, can I say Fermentation.
0: You can say anything you want.
1: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) lacto-fermentation.
0: Fair enough. Uh, What's your favorite uh, aroma or smell? What aroma or smell do you love?
1: This is easy. Uh, My mom's a gardener, and when she used to take me to these big flower shows, you'd enter this huge hall with hundreds of different flower uh, people working with their own flowers, and the smell of thousands of different flowers in one hall was just, flowers
0: wow so there's no beeping okay what's your favorite curse word
1: <laughs> um plonker
0: oh that's nice never heard that <laughs> <laughs> uh what sound or noise do you love
1: definitely bird song the sound of bird song is just um eth- ethereal um but i've just learned yesterday that the vibration that bumblebees make mm-hmm. can cure or not cure, uh, yeah can heal uh, trauma or ptsd will can heal trauma isn't that remarkable yeah i don't even know if that's classified as a sound but it's a vibration and i just thought yeah. that was so so remarkable and another another uh shout out to nature
0: yes exactly nature is 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 the perfection yes what sound or noise do you hate
1: Ooh, slurping <laughs>
0: Okay. what plant or animal would you like to be reincarnated in
1: i don't know which animal i would choose to be reincarnated in but if i was another animal i think i would be a flying squirrel
0: oh nice nice very active in in the woods <laughs> and last question if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at the pearly gates
1: let's get creative <laughs>
0: Douglas McMaster, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.